Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures. Today and tomorrow, the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, it's Rob Moyer, and we're going to talk today about right whales and plankton and ocean ecology and, um, and some wrong decisions and some right decisions that are now being made for the environment. Uh, this is the uh, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, and I like the word ocean river, which I found being used by Homer and Rachel Carson, because ocean river speaks to uh, overlapping ecosystems, the, the world of the otter and the salmon, they don't distinguish between what's ocean and what's river. And it's really important as we manage and coexist with animals and live in these environments that we not see them as bounded separate boxes, but that they are overlapping and connected and that we must look for the surprise interlinctions and surprise and unexpected uh, relationships that we find in these systems. So it's complicated. And what we focus on in this program are the people who are making the difference, who are going the extra mile to try to find linkages and approaches and more robust solutions to better managing uh, oceans and rivers and ecosystems. And it's also about how you as an individual, what you can do to help save the world, save the planet, um, help oceans and rivers and wildlife. Uh, today we're talking with uh, people from the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies. And then at the end of the show, David, Ch- David Wilmont from Ocean Champions will be on the line to talk about what's happening in Washington, D.C. to better the environment as well. So with me today are Rich Delaney from the Center for Coastal Studies. And Rich is the founding director of Urban Harbor Institutes, Urban Harbors Institute at UMass Boston. He's former Coastal Zone Management Director for Massachusetts, uh, and he's past chair of Coastal Studies, Coastal States Organization in Washington, D.C. Uh, also with us is Tanya Grady, and Tanya is a coordinator. She wrote it down for me. I've got to look it up here. Oh. <laughs> um, and also with us is, uh, oh, here it is, Tanya is communications coordinator. And then Dr. Stormy Mayo is co-founder of the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies. He co-founded that with uh, Barbara Mayo and Al Avalar and a host of fabulous people out there on the very end of Cape Cod. Uh, Stormy is uh, senior scientist and director of the Right Whale Habitat Studies Program in PCC at the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies. Uh, so let's start with Richard Delaney. Um, what, hi, Richard. Good morning, Rob. How are you? Good. Thanks for getting on the line and, and getting on the show with us. I'm uh, glad to be with wh- you. What is the uh, Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies up to these days? Uh, what kind of management decisions 
that are based on your research are being made? Well, we're pursuing the uh, the same mission that we that uh, was the founders' vision back 34 years ago, which is to to have a, uh, a scientific research institute focused on marine mammals and coastal and ocean ecosystems that also has a major public education and outreach component, and thirdly, uh, makes that science available to decision makers to hopefully um, assist with sustainable decisions about our oceans and coasts. So we're still, we're still at it 34 years later, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Mayo and Another one of our founders, uh, Dr. Graham Geis, are still with us, is still plugging away. But our, our immediate issues uh, at this time, 34 years later, have expanded a bit. Mm. Initially, we were focused on, on understanding marine mammals, particularly the North Atlantic right whale and its behavior, which was incredibly endangered at that time and still is, and the humpback. But now we, we, we have broadened our perspective even further to understand that in order to help preserve those species of, of marine mammals and whales, we have to preserve the health of the ecosystem in which they live. So we are focused, are fo- more focused these days on ecosystem science and how that supports ecosystem-based management, like the development of a Massachusetts ocean plan that's we're very much involved in these days. Yes, I'll ask you more about the, the meetings you held um, after I introduce uh, Tanya, uh, who is going to tell us more about um, the the volunteer opportunities and what citizens can make a difference, that you said that was an important part of your mission. Um, what are some of the other um, research issues that you're overseeing now, or or that are helping to inform decisions? Well, in addition to the uh, the marine mammal research, we also have a, a very active land sea research program. And this is headed up by Dr. Geis. In this, in this situation, we are looking at coastal changes, in particular along the outer beach of Cape Cod, uh, where we have a, actually an ideal laboratory for trying to understand how uh, coastal processes affect the landform. And, of course, a lot of that land in other parts of the, of the world's coastlines has been developed. And... Today's new twist is with the recognition that sea level rise, or the rate of sea level rise, will be increasing dramatically in the next few decades. We need to understand how that will affect our, our not only our built environment, but our natural environment. For example, as salt marshes, which you and your listeners, I'm sure, understand are one of the most productive habitats we have anywhere in the world, uh, if they become more inundated, the conditions change, and ideally, under natural conditions, they would retreat further inland. But because we've altered and structured our coastline so much, we may have major loss of salt marsh habitat unless we plan ahead and figure out how to mitigate and adapt to that change. And that's part of what our, our sea-land interface uh, project is doing. Yeah, I don't think... Everyone understands what a dynamic shoreline you have there on the Outer Cape. I've been fortunate to, to walk the highlands with Dr. Geis, and, and it's, you know, they're, they're seeing property houses and, and it would have been the lighthouse that didn't pull it back fall into the ocean. So this is not just a rocky shoreline or a stable place. It's, it's very dynamic, isn't it? Yes, yes, extremely.
extremely dynamic. And, and, and the Outer Beach, uh, some of your listeners may know, is actually Cape Cod National Seashore, which is about 34 miles in length. That particular habitat, that particular length of coastline has been really unaltered because it's been a park. So it's a perfect laboratory for understanding the process. But if you go to almost any other section of coastline in the United States, certainly, we have uh, built, and in many cases overbuilt, and altered, this, altered that coastline so dr- dramatically that we have put, well, for example, many buildings at risk for what we anticipate will be more dramatic and intense hurricanes. I mentioned the salt marsh situation. Uh, generally, in, in, as, as, as we have more intense storms, with storm surge on top of that, or more coastal flooding. So these, these are the kinds of um, real problems that we are anticipating and that we are trying to bring our scientific understanding to, uh, to the decision makers to hope help them make better decisions. And what other kinds of, of animals do you, do you find in the research coming up besides marine well, mammals? We've just launched in the last year uh, a new focus on pinnipeds, uh, seals, and one of our researchers named uh, Lisa Seti has uh, has brought her experience with uh, seal-human interaction in the Aleutian Islands and in Alaska and is now focusing on the rapidly increasing populations of harbor seals and gray seals on Cape Cod. And... Uh, they are sometimes seen as cute little puppy-like animals in the water, but other people see the thousands of them that now exist as uh, competition, for, particularly with a recreational commercial fishermen. So we, we, again, here are trying to figure out what the real story is, what their population means, where we can expect to stabilize, how much, what, what, what are their diets really like? Are they, in fact, eating as... Eating the uh, the striped bass, as some of the fishermen like to say on the beach, may not be all true. So again, we're trying to provide a good understanding of the science there. And you're seeing changing populations. It used to be, as I recall, that the gray seals would be, you know, off the South Cape and up in Boston Harbor, you'd be having just um, harbor seals. But is it true they're seeing more gray seals? Or uh, yes, yes. In fact, um, twenty. 20 years, 25 years in Stormy will help me maybe with some of these numbers when you speak to him, but uh, it was unusual to see a, uh, a gray seal off the Cape, and it was quite a, an event when you did. Before that, however, 20, 34 years before that, there were quite a few seals, and in fact, uh, there were bounties on seals at one point in Cape Cod. Uh. So the trend, and, and, and here's where it's hard, where public education is important, you know, there are cycles in nature, and there are rhythms to it, and one change can affect change all the way down through the ecosystem. So the more we understand that, the better we're informed we are, and hopefully um, can live in more harmony with our, with our environment. Wow, there's a lot there. It's, it's, and we, as you were saying, we tend to look at snapshots of you know, short time periods. We need to look long. We're going to take a break, and I will be back with uh, Richard Delaney and uh, Tanya Grady and Stormy Mayo after the break. Keep 
listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about uh, Cape Cod Bay, Mass Bay, and uh, the Gulf of Maine, with uh, the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies. Tanya Grady is with us, and she is the uh, communications coordinator. And Tanya has been with uh, the Provincetown Center for five years. And uh, Tanya, how are you doing today? Great, thank you. Thank you for having me. And what does uh, the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies um, provide as opportunities for people to act and to become more... um, more involved in, in, in helping to better Mass Bay and Cape Cod Bay and the greater Atlantic Ocean and the world and so forth? Well, uh, as far as opportunities for the general public to get involved in local conservation efforts, uh, we provide um, lecture series which uh, are offered throughout the year on various marine-related topics. But we also host uh, field walks, and they're hosted by our scientists. So it offers people a great exchange uh, with our science staff uh, 
to better understand their surroundings and the things that they're seeing and the interactions that they're having with the environment. Um, and beyond that, we offer uh, a fisherman's forum. Well, this past year we hosted a fisherman's forum. We hope to continue to do that. And that's actually hosted by Owen Nichols. He's a director of the Center's Marine Fisheries Initiative. And this year uh, he brought together fishermen, local community members, and scientists. And we discussed a broad range of topics, including uh, the state of our fisheries, changes to fishing regulations, and issues concerning the future of the fishing industry. That's really great that you bring people together. You provide a, uh, a common ground that people can kick back and, and hopefully you know, things aren't too, too restricted to speeches and stuff. There's nothing like getting out in the field and walking with Graham Geis or uh, the other scientists um, through the landscape and along the shore. Of um, Do you have a chance to do any of that? I do, I do. Um, it's an incredible experience. Uh, it's wonderful to see the interest in the faces of the community, and it's also wonderful to actually learn from an experienced marine biologist about the wonderful marine mammals that we may see off the coast during these field walks. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, they, they give you the initial, you know, pocket elevator speeches, and we've heard those, but then as things become more and more clear, as, as uh, different you know, things are brought to light, uh, it, it's all, I always learn something, always learn something interesting, and it's a great way. It's a, and families can do the walks, right, with the scientists? Absolutely, and we encourage families to come out and attend these field walks. Um, we, we don't charge a fee for these walks. They're free. They're open to the public. Um, so it's a great way to uh, spend some quality time with the family, to get involved, and to see what's going on in your backyard. And, um, Richard, you've been um, hosting uh, some planning in, at the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies. Uh, yes, we've been very actively involved with a, uh, I believe it's probably the first in the United States effort to create a comprehensive plan for how we're going to use the ocean, the ocean surface, the ocean waters off our coast. Uh, what people have realized in recent years is that when you look out at, a, at the Blue Sea, it looks like there's not a lot going on, but in fact, uh, when you overlay the number of activities from shipping lanes to cable crossings to proposals for offshore energy facilities, proposals to remove sand and gravel to re-nourish beaches, aquaculture plants, there, there's actually a, a myriad of, of activities either going on or planned, often competing with each other, often not being done in the most environmentally sensitive way. So the goal of this plan is the Commonwealth of Massachusetts will soon kinds of uses that should happen in areas there where they are suitable, other areas where they should be prohibited, and in effect, zone the ocean surface. It's a huge effort. It's, uh, as I say, the first in the nation. We're using all of our scientific understanding as the basis for this, and then we're using a, an organization called the Massachusetts Ocean Partnership, and that's a collaboration of many different so-called stakeholders, but users ranging from industry to researchers, to citizens, to government agencies. And in this forum, people can share their views and interests, learn how the other users are, are proposing.
proposing to use the ocean surface and then hopefully come to some consensus on what would be the most sustainable plan. Well, the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies is really fortunate to have you, Richard. I know that uh, you're relatively recent there, but um, the experiences you bring it could not be better, more appropriate for uh, managing and hosting these kinds of, of uh, forums of what we call elephants and butterflies, the big federal agencies and the strong state agencies and little groups of citizens and stuff. Um, you know, it, it's pretty remarkable that they're fortunate to have someone who used to direct coastal zone management and then yeah. uh, go on to the Urban Harbors Institute, which overlooks Boston Harbor from on top of UMass Boston and but I bet you find that a lot of it is herding cats and, and um, being respectful at the same time. I mean, I shouldn't call them cats. Thank you for the compliment, but really, I'm the, I am the lucky one. I mean, I now have, in this position, a chance to continue my, my focus on oceans and coasts, which you can see from my resume has been my, my lifelong focus, but to rejoin Stormy, Mayo, Graham Geist, Tanya, all of the wonderful staff. We have 22 people working at the center. And, and as you, I think you got the flavor of Tanya's comments. These are active scientists. We're not up there in the in our in our ivory tower just doing research uh, to create new knowledge. We're doing it to help solve problems and to protect and conserve the ocean. So it's it's just wonderful for me to be able to spend my days in Provincetown with these with this this, this kind of a group of people who are so committed and. Uh, I'm really the lucky one, and, and we have a lot of work to do, unfortunately. Yeah, and that spills over to your work with the Mass Ocean Partnership in that, you know, all the players there are so thankful to get together and have a chance to learn from each other. We have so many silos where we each have to report to our bosses, and we're too busy to to reach out laterally and keep in touch with people. And, and, and uh, to have, specifically to have a meeting at the Provincetown Center of Coastal Studies uh, it was wonderful because many of us would take the boat from Boston to Provincetown, and that would give us some time to catch up with our colleagues that normally we're just too busy with. So, thank you for that. You know, one of the one of the things that people sometimes don't appreciate is that doing the kind of science we do and collecting the data that we have for twenty or thirty years, and also planning. People say, "Why do you plan? What's what's that? Doesn't make well, when you when you have a, a thoughtful plan provided." based on good science, things happen. I think Stormy, when he talks to you a little bit more about some of the right whale right. research and work, that data has been instrumental over the years to create designations of areas. I'll let talk about shipping lanes, about critical areas. So it really comes becomes so valuable in helping us then put in place the protective measures. The minute Absolutely. The we have engaged health. citizens, engaged scientists, engaged policymakers. I wanted to return to, to Tanya and tell us a bit about Coast Week and um, some of the home port banquets. Sure. Well, Coast Sweep is actually uh, Massachusetts' annual statewide beach cleanup. And Excuse me, Tanya. It's Coast Sweep? Yes. So it's like hurling with brooms. You go out there and... and... <laughs> exactly. Sweeping up our coastline. <laughs> And uh, we at the center are participating on September 19th at 2 p.m. And it's a wonderful opportunity for people to come out uh, throughout the state of Massachusetts and um, clean up our beaches, take responsibility, and uh, get out there and clean them up. It's actually the event is sponsored by the Massachusetts Office for Coastal Zone Management. 
and it's coordinated by the Urban Harbors Institute. Is it dangerous? Do you have to wear hazmat suits? <laughs> Can children participate? (laughs) No, I wouldn't say it's dangerous, but gloves, I think, would be a good idea. And common sense. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Um, And also, I'd just like to say, if people would like to get involved or learn more about it, they can visit our website, www.coastalstudies.org. That's the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies at www.coastalstudies.org. Studies. Yes. Org. Yes. And uh, tell us about Home Port Banquets. Well, the Home Port Banquet is an annual banquet. It's a benefit uh, that we hold each year to raise money for a scholarship fund, um, and the money in the scholarship fund is awarded to a woman who is pursuing a degree in science. Oh, well, that's great. Yeah, it is. So it, it becomes a, a mentor for people to um, look up to or. Yes. That's, it's so good to see, you know, spotlighted, successful um, individuals like that or people who are going the distance. That's, that's really great. Well, I and think it's a reason to get together, too. Right, exactly. It's a great uh, reason to get together. It's always around the holidays. Therefore, it's called our Holiday Home Poor Banquet. Um, and it's a great way for us to get together with our members, our volunteers, our donors, and also the general public and invite people to learn more about what it is we do and to actually talk with our scientists and understand our programs, our research, and learn about new opportunities and how people can contribute and make a difference on a local level. So if, if people want to help out, can they ask for you, Tanya? Definitely, absolutely. They can do that, and they can go to our website, and uh, they can uh, give us a call here at the center also. And they can join the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies and then be on the mailing list. Exactly, and get all of these updates and find out what we're up to, any new information that comes available, learn about new programs and ways to get involved. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you so much. Stormy, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing fine. Thanks, Rob. Okay, we're going to be back with Stormy Mayo after this break and more about the, the whales and wildlife of the oceans of Cape Cod Bay and Mass Bay. For listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. 
The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Have questions about wind power? Listen for the TLG Wind Power Hour with Terry from TLG Wind Power Products. He'll cover the ins and outs of wind energy with you. Whether you're a do-it-yourselfer or want a ready-made product, let Terry give you the know-how and understanding of making wind energy work for you. Terry will share decades of hands-on experience so that you don't have to learn about wind power the hard way. The TLG Wind Power Hour, live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. For listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with Dr. Stormy Mayo of the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies. Uh, if you ever went out of, chances are that if you went out seeing whales, um, to look for whales on Stellwagen Bank out of Provincetown, uh, the first vessels going out were the Dolphin Fleet, and the Dolphin Fleet continues to go out. And for many of those voyages, uh, Stormy has been the uh, scientist on board to help uh, find the whales and then keep... Uh, that turned out to be really valuable records of uh, what the sightings are and the behaviors and stuff. So it's, it's a real honor to have uh, Dr. Mayo uh, take time from his work and time at sea uh, to, uh, to talk to us. Stormy, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Uh, it's, it's good to be with you. And uh, so what are we finding about all the whales? And, and, and tell us about the ecosystem and how important that is that supports them and stuff. Right. Well, uh, most of my work uh, has uh, really transferred to studying one uh, species. Uh, I used to do a lot of work with uh, humpback whales and fin whales. Uh, now other people uh, are, are doing that at the center, and uh, in fact, in the Atlantic and the Pacific, uh, most of my work now is focused uh, on uh, North Atlantic right whales. Uh, they're one of the rarest of all the species of large whales, probably the rarest. And uh, so we're looking very closely at uh, questions of ecosystem, uh, figuring that the final battle to save them likely will be, as it is with many large mammals, uh, a battle over the system, the ecosystem that supports them. So we've been doing a lot of work with their food, um, trying to understand as best we can what it is that they depend upon. Yeah, because they, they, yeah, they depend on the ocean. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's it's remarkable the um, that these animals survive and 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 you know. So, are you seeing the ocean becoming more healthy or less healthy, or um, and is that having an impact one way or the other? Well, I think uh, you know there there are many scales of change uh, and. 
I, I don't think we can say that the ocean ever is 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 changeless. Uh, it hasn't been in the history of the oceans. It, there's always change going on. But um, as as I'm sure your listeners know, one of the troubling issues both about uh, things like extinction and uh, changes in ecosystem is that the changes now are occurring at ever increasing pace uh, and in some respects at ever increasing depth. Uh, and uh, certainly the environments that we're studying uh, where right whales still make a living uh, are undergoing some of those fast changes. Uh, one of them that, of course, concerns all of us is the change in climate and and global warming issues, which doubtless will impact the oceans uh, as much, probably more, uh, than uh, than the land. And um, we're anticipating that. But uh, on the local basis, we 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 know that there are such things as increasing rates of uh, nutrient uh, addition uh, to the Gulf of Maine, uh, seen in increasing nitrogen uh, concentrations. And that, doubtless, um, in a very different way than, than climate change, will have a profound impact on the food web that the right whales depend upon. So it's, a, it's like a lot of the problems that you, uh, you highlight. Uh, this one also has many different layers and many different scales, and we're doing our best to understand those. Well, Jeremy Jackson talks about the sliming of the oceans, and yet I think Aren't there things we can do to help with that uh, problem of nutrient loading? Well, I think we can as a society. Well, we can as individuals, too, but, uh, but the scale of, of the change that one individual can make is not nearly as profound as the, as the, the changes that society can make. Um, we, we have uh, had, through really all of, uh, of human history, uh, an ethic that allows us to uh, put our wastes, uh, whether chemical or sewage, into water bodies, uh, uh, into rivers and and oceans. And if they go into rivers, of course, uh, eventually it ends up in the ocean anyway. So uh, I think a lot of uh, a lot of the the problems that regard uh, chemical pollution. And sewage pollution, nutrient uh, pollution, um, a lot of those problems can be uh, somewhat mitigated uh, if we're willing to take on the substantial expense of controlling uh, our uh, our waste. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, it's, you know, it is an expense. It's not easy to uh, uh, to convince society to come up with the money, especially these days. Well, the state requires you to have your septic system up to snuff. And I'm sure that's making a big difference on Cape Cod. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, but, uh, you know, as always, it's multi-level. Uh, many places like the town that I live in uh, are have septic uh, systems that have been forced to be upgraded. Uh, and we also have sewer systems. But eventually we have a large volume of nutrient-rich water that gets injected into the ground, uh, and on Cape Cod, where there's a lot of uh, mm. movement of that water body, uh, it eventually comes out as nutrient-rich water uh, into the uh, embayment. Uh, right, eventually, and there, so probably like... it's far down the road, we're going to have to learn how to turn the water that was sewage 
uh, or chemically polluted uh, back into drinking water, and then we will have a closed system that uh, that'll work. So let's talk about some critters. That's a deal. <laughs> Um, how, how are the, how's, how's plankton doing? That's an important food source for, for right whales. And, right. And you've been doing uh, well, studies on it, that, haven't you? With, yeah, we've been, uh, one of the central things that we've been doing has been look, uh, looking at the food resources, uh, that support the right whales. Cape Cod Bay is a very special location. It's really probably the closest, uh, nearest shore uh, feeding habitat for the last right whales uh, that has been identified, and our work uh, found them here back in the mid-'80s. Um, and our main interest has been in the plankton, uh, the, the really nearly invisible food uh, that right whales filter from the water. Uh, the plankton system right now appears to be relatively uh, good. It's never stable. It's always changing, but the average concentration of, of food organisms in Cape Cod Bay remains uh, very high in the midwinter and mid and late winter and, um, and seems at present enough to support uh, the right whales that come here. Um, Bravo. But I have to say, though, that um, we do anticipate changes will be coming with increasing uh, nutrient addition and changes in climate, there doubtless will be changes in the plankton resource. Um, one well, that's that right. One of the changes in climate is forcing carbon from the atmosphere into the ocean, which leads to ocean acidification. And yep. could acidity, might, might that be a problem? Well, uh, doubtless. Uh, that impacts uh, virtually everything, including the, the food that we eat out of the, out of the sea. Um, uh, ocean acidification is is yet another issue. I haven't mentioned it, and uh, it's not my specialty, but it is very worrisome with regard to the plankton organisms that are so small and and hence so uh, so delicate. So uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yet another issue. Now, last time I saw you, you had to rush home to walk the squid or something. What are you doing yeah. with squid these days? Well, I've, uh, uh, the the uh, fisheries specialist who's working at the center, uh, Owen Nichols, and I have had an interest in uh, in squid, and uh, we've had access to uh, to squid eggs, and uh, and had uh, pretty good success uh, raising them. Uh, my excuse is that I work on plankton with regard to right whales, uh, so plankton is my bridge to actually work on plankton to feed uh, squid, and uh, we've. We've had some interesting breakthroughs that uh, that mean that we've got a bunch of squid in our whale uh, our whale research laboratory. I like to eat squid. Is it okay to to eat squid? Well, I, I do too. Although it's not okay to eat the ones I'm raising. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, the the ones we're raising are uh, the bigger ones are probably not more than about uh, oh I guess they're approaching a centimeter long. Um, so they're not very big, but but uh, this is a species that uh, people eat, and uh, uh, I'm continuing to eat it, and uh, and I think it's uh, still a pretty good food. I find that we're finding all these toxins that bioaccumulate in these top predator fish like tuna and swordfish, and rather than back away from eating seafood, I I encourage people to eat small fish and and squid and clams and 
is, that's probably a pretty good approach. Yeah, from what I know, uh, it appears to be uh, the lower uh, in the ecosystem, meaning the the sort of the closer to the base of the food web uh, that uh, that your your fish products come from, uh, the better it is. Uh, there is accumulation, as you say, uh, in the upper levels of the food web. Uh, swordfish, uh, tunas, some of the big predators, uh, sharks certainly included. All those sharks now have been so heavily impacted by fishing that uh, not many people on this coast eat shark. Uh, they just can't find it. But, um, what, but yes, um, I think you're right. Uh, low on the food web is a better place to eat. We just have a couple minutes left. Um, tell us a quick story of a right whale or, or whale observation you've made or something. Well, uh, you know, our work, uh, and I, I should say that our work uh, at the center uh, is is uh, dependent on a, on not just me, but a but a group of people who all take independent interest uh, in 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 the uh, whales, and some of them are doing graduate work uh, with our project. Uh, we have a large team of people uh, working through the Division of Marine Fisheries. Uh, of the state of Massachusetts, uh, one of the most aggressive programs to conserve right whales. Uh, our work uh, is aimed um, uh, at uh, trying to understand how the food distribution influences where the whales are. So I think the main story I can tell you is that uh, we've discovered that if you want to know where whales are, uh, all you got to do is, is sample for their food. And there's no surprise in that. It's uh, you know, around noontime every day, if you want to find where humans are, just find out where the eating establishments are. Uh, but uh, it does mean that we're able to uh, to use where the food is as a surrogate for where the whales are, and that allows us uh, to make some predictions as to where whales are likely to run into fishing gear or to be run over by ships. So it's an interesting use of the ecosystem as a way of predicting uh, on some things that... Uh, that are risky for whales. Well, that makes a lot of sense because it's hard to second guess a whale. But if you know where their meals are, you can. That's that's brilliant. You can start telling boats to you know avoid those areas or travel right. to go through them. Well, that's been the center of it, uh, and we do a great deal of work uh, under federal permit. Uh, one can't approach right whales uh, any longer as my ancestors once did when they hunted them, uh, unless one has a federal permit. And of course, things like hunting are now uh, federal offenses. Uh, but we are able to approach them, and we work very close to these truly remarkable animals that come in close to the beaches of Cape Cod in the midwinter and early spring. So that's the best time to join you to see a right whale would be. Yeah, yeah. well, of, uh, of course, whale watch boats, uh, our work is done now entirely from research vessels that are federally permitted. Uh, whale watch Stormy, boats, I have to interrupt. It, we'll be right back with a little bit more of Stormy after this break. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. All together now. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Experience higher love, an archangelic journey into ascended joy and authentic living. Your hosts, Sri Ram Ka and Kira Ra, will assist you to open your heart, expand your love, and be ever-present with true joy. Your journey with Sri and Kira begins right here on the 7th Wave Network with Higher Love, Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Can we recognize our world not as a commodity, but as a sacred creation that will support us best the more creatively we live on it? Green Visions is all about how a spirit of innovation and pleasure can be brought into solving our environmental problems. Join your host, Carolyn North, each week as she talks about what citizens of the world are doing to make a difference. Heal the planet, heal yourself, and have a good time doing it. Tune in to Green Visions with Carolyn North every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, it's Rob Moyer, and we've been talking with Dr. Stormy Mayo of the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies. Stormy has uh, been focusing more on the right whales than the other ones, but mostly he told us about the ecology and the dependence on their food sources and the health, the needs for a healthy, healthy ocean ecosystem. And Stormy, I want to thank you for taking this time to talk with us. You bet, Rob. It's uh, awfully good to talk with you and your listeners, and uh, thanks for the questioning. I appreciate it. If you oh. have uh, further questions or want information, please visit the Provincetown Center Coastal, for Studies, Coastal Studies website at www.coastalstudies.org. Stormy, thanks a lot. Yep, thanks, Rob. Bye. Bye. With us now is David Wilmot from Ocean Champions. Uh, David... Um, we missed you last week, and uh, but you, 
good to have you back this week. Uh, and to we've been talking from the beginning, from episode one, about these um, algal blooms happening, and you were telling us that a bit of the work going forward with a harmful algal bloom bill. And I hear that uh, you have some news for us on how that's going today. We, we, we do indeed. Uh, thank you for having me on again, Rob. It's always, always good to talk with you. I had to miss last week because I was on a plane headed back to Washington, D.C., and when we arrived, we, we spent much of the week up on Capitol Hill, and we got some exciting news that today, in, in just a couple of hours, there is going to be what's called a markup of the Harmful Algal Blooms Bill. And a markup is basically where, where a committee uh, votes on the bill, and we anticipate very good results today, uh, and we'll get back to everybody uh, with, a, with those final results right away. People should watch us on, uh, on our Facebook, and, and our website will be announcing the results. So the markup is, leads into a vote um, by the committee, and then it is ready to go to the floor? Or, um, that's, and that's are we talking uh, uh, representatives or Senate or both? Or yeah, so that, that's exactly right. So in the Senate, this is going to happen on the Senate side, and people have probably been hearing more about markups in recent days because there's been so much talk about the health bill, that, which has to be marked up in multiple committees. Well, luckily our bill is just one committee. It's the Commerce Committee, and once it passes that committee today, then it will just require action on the floor of the Senate before it would be uh, sent to the House side. We have to get a bill out of the House of Representatives, and then the, the two come together, get agreement, pass that, and send it to the President. So the other good news is is that we uh, during, this, the, during the break coming up, uh, the bill will be written in the House, so it should be introduced in early September and we anticipate that that bill will be very similar to the bill that's moving in the Senate, and it always makes things easier when those bills are compatible. So why should congressmen support this bill? We need a national strategy for harmful algal blooms. Uh, as we've talked about on each of the shows that we've been on, uh, there are a lot of problems caused by blooms to wildlife in the oceans as well as to humans impacts on economies, impacts fisheries, tourism. We need a strategy to understand, predict, control, and prevent harmful algal blooms. We can't accomplish that without this legislation. That's what makes this legislation so very important. That's really important. Um, each region of the, of the coastline of America seems to have their own version, the variation of algal bloom problems and red tide and, and things like that, and, uh, you know, from the Chesapeake to um, the Chutkai Sea off Alaska there. Uh, so this is very exciting that, you know, it's not a whole comprehensive all the ocean stuff, but it's a specific issue that touches on a lot of people, I would think. And what's also exciting about this is this wouldn't happen without the champions in the House and the Senate who care about the oceans. And at Ocean Champions, we support and help these champions so that they get reelected, so that they can go do exactly what they're doing now, do good things for the oceans. And that's been very, uh, very encouraging to see. So whether it's Senator Snow from Maine, Senator Nelson in Florida, the two authors of the bill in the Senate, uh, this wouldn't happen without their leadership. They're stepping up, they're making this happen, 
and uh, that's what that's what we're all about, and it's 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 encouraging. It looks bipartisan because I think you really stuck to the topic and the concerns that is broader than one party. It is indeed bipartisan, uh, and both the House and the Senate, we have Republicans and Democrats in the leadership role and also just in the support role. And that also is nice to see. It's not easy to do things in a bipartisan fashion, but when we come to an issue like this, uh, it's, it's a lot easier. There's, there, there are no political debates that uh, are few that work, work their way in. So fingers crossed, knock on wood, uh, this is moving at, uh, at a very fast pace and uh, we, we might be able to get this done by the end of the year. Well, bravo. We're, we're supporting you, you know, in thoughts and so forth, um, wherever we are. Uh, so it's August now, and um, politicians are going home. It's, it's kind of a break time. Uh, what does this mean for Ocean Champions? It's not a very, uh, very slow time for us. While the bosses leave Washington, D.C., the staff remains, and a lot of good work happens. Uh, for example, on the House side, the staff will be writing this harmful algal blooms bill during the recess break. Um, so we find it's a great time to get in, spend some extra time with staff, helping them in any way that we can, uh, get ready for a big push in September. There's not a lot of time left once they come back after Labor Day, um, so we have to be prepared to go. So it, it'll be pretty busy for us in August, but uh, very exciting. That sounds like you're going to be busy. Um, and and what do you see on the horizon in addition to Hobbs? Well, in addition to the, the harmful algal blooms, there is, uh, there's work that continues both with the administration and in Congress, important pieces of, of ocean legislation. The, the energy bill has it, huge implications for the oceans, the energy climate bill that uh, has passed the House, and now we're, we're working to see if there's going to be Senate action. Um, I think that that is going to dominate an awful lot of the time um, with health care. Health care is the number one priority coming back in on everybody's mind. So we need to see a couple of those big issues get dealt with before they'll have the time and the energy to move to some of the other important uh, ocean issues that are, that are on the agenda. Well, the climate bill is an enormous ocean issue. We were hearing from Dr. Stormy Mayo about how dependent the right whales are on plankton as a food source, and he was worried that the carbon from the atmosphere was being shoved into the ocean and causing the ocean to become more acidic, and that would be tough on those little calcareous critters, the copepods and stuff. Um, I, I think this is a good effort that you guys are putting into this. The climate bill is, is critically important to the oceans, no doubt about it, both in terms of uh, global warming, but also, as you mentioned, acidification, which doesn't depend on global warming, just the CO2 level. Important yeah. issue. Well, that's, a, that's it for this episode of Ocean River Shields of Achilles. David Wilmot, I want to thank you for being with us from Ocean Champions. My pleasure, Rob. Thank you. Next week, we'll talk about Westfield River.
Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.